Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So we are continuing here our study in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Uh, As Doug read there, we're going to be in chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. And so uh, only a few verses, and so um, maybe we will maybe we'll get you out by lunchtime, hopefully. Um, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper uh, at the end of the service today, and so we'll talk more about that here in a minute. So where are we? If you are a guest with us, or maybe you haven't been attending, or maybe you're new uh, here to, to a service here at the Ridge, I, I kind of want to give you a brief kind of update uh, as far as where we're at here in the text. We are studying through a, a book of what's called the New Testament called Hebrews. Hebrews is a letter that was written by an unknown author. We don't know who the author is. There's some speculation, but we don't know who the author is exactly. The letter has been written to Hebrews, to people that are of Jewish heritage or Hebrew. They're Hebrew people. Um, they obviously have a long tradition of of um, Judaism and all the things that come with that. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but the, the high priestly system, the sacrificial system, uh, the 12 tribes, the, the covenant, the old covenant from that God gave Abraham, all of that. That is their world. That's, that's really what they've been immersed in and what they know. Um, they've offered sacrifices for their sins, and there's a high priest system, all of this. And so he's writing, the writer is writing to these people so that Um, he's going to share the gospel with them. He's telling them that Jesus has come and he's fulfilling all of these things that that they know, that they've experienced, that their their culture, that that their people have been doing for hundreds of years, that Jesus now has come and he's fulfilled all of that. And what I tried to get across last week is that that's a big thing for them. That's that's hard for them to understand because what, what the author here is trying to say is he's, he's been working through it very methodically through, through his letter to them and, and kind of explaining who Jesus is and that Jesus is greater than, than Moses, greater than the angels, greater than the high priest that they come to understand. There was 84 high priests since the time of Israel's start until the temple was destroyed. And so all of those things. And what now this author is saying is, that, hey guys, this guy named Jesus, who maybe you've heard of, it's fulfilled all of that, and he's replacing all of that. He's better than all of that. And you can imagine how hard that would be for them. Now think about this for a second. Jesus only had three years of ministry. So it wasn't like Jesus was 80 years old, had been a, a, a prophet or a teacher of the law for all these years, all this. No, he's on the scene for 33 years, and only three of those years do we have much recorded about him that he's doing ministry. And so in these three years, Basically what the author is saying is this guy has come, he is the son of God, and he has come to fulfill and to replace this system that is not perfect. Well, now that's kind of offensive in the first place. You're telling us what we've been doing all this time is not good? Now, I I will argue that it is good. That God instituted the old covenant. God instituted the law. God instituted the high priestly system, the sacrificial system. And for it was good. It was a very purposeful thing that God was doing. And so what did we say a little bit last week? We said the purpose of it was to show us our sin, was to take a people, the Jews, to give them everything that they could, that they could have, in other words, the whole sacrificial system, all the laws, and yet that people ultimately at the end of the day could not be good. They could not save themselves. So it's this picture that humanity cannot save ourselves. 
We said last week when I started the message last week that the problem with humanity is what? That we have sin. That every one of us is a sinner. We rebel against God. We, we do things, we're disobedient. We, we do things we know that are sin and we do them anyway. Our hearts are hard and, and all of those things. We have pride and envy and jealousy and lust and all of those things and we're, we're wrestling with those things. But that was only one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is we can't do anything to fix that in and of ourselves. We are helpless to be able to fix that. And so here what, what the author is trying to say is, is that, guys, we've been doing sacrificial things that God has given us for all this time, but we're still not saved. We're still not in a place where, where we're made perfect before God. And Jesus is going to fulfill all that. He's going to make it so that we can have all of that and we can be saved. And, and so what the author now says last week is that God has instituted a perfect priesthood. No longer one of men, no longer one of sinful men, but one of perfect priesthood. So then, this week, when we get to verse 23 through 28, the author now is kind of diving a little deeper. He's, last week he talked about the perfect priesthood. Now he's going to talk about the priest that's going to fulfill that role of perfect priesthood. And that is Jesus and so he's going to get into some details. So this morning we're going to look at probably six or seven attributes of what a perfect priest looks like and how Jesus fulfills this perfect priesthood. Now before we dive into that, I want to share with you that when the author starts his letter here in Hebrews, he gives them some, some foreshadowing of where he's going already. Immediately he starts to talk about it. Now I am not an English guy. I've uh, if you know me, you, you know that I, I didn't do well in school. Um, I didn't do well in English particularly. Um, and I, I hated writing. I, I didn't want to write papers. In fact, I've only written a couple papers in my entire life probably. I'm ashamed to say that. But I, I just don't like writing. I'm a, I'm a talker if you, wouldn't, if you hadn't guessed. And, and so, but I know enough that a lot of times when you write your paper, you start out by kind of sharing what the purpose that you're going to write this paper about. And so here in the author, when he, when he writes in chapter 1, verse 3, he says this. After making purifications for sins, now he's talking about Jesus already. In the first opening of his letter, he's referencing this guy named Jesus, right? After making purifications for sin, he sat down, he being Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, man, that's, that's really putting it out there right away. He's telling these Hebrews that this man is sitting at the right hand of God, and he's the one that's made purifications for our sins. Now, he's going to go all through this letter and be able to unpack that and be able to explain that. But in chapter 2, he comes around again to it, and this is really direct. Chapter 2, verse 17. He says, therefore, he had, meaning, right, God here is working, he had to be made like his brothers. He's talking about Jesus here. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. So he's already beginning to hint to them that this Jesus that he's going to talk to them about, who's better than the angels, better than Moses, higher than all those things, is going to be the high priest that's going to take away their sin. He's going to be the great high priest, become merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Right? And so he's, he's telling them, he's going to talk about this high priest. Now, he's going to later then, when we get into these other chapters, and we see it here, we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, that this high priest is Jesus, and he's going to replace the current high priest system of the sacrificial system, and he's going to do it perfectly with Jesus. And so what's the big idea for us this morning? 
God provided a perfect high priest for his people. God provided a perfect high priest for his people. Now, as we kind of go through this, you know, a lot of times we can just read passages and just, but I, I want you to really think, if you're a, if you're a believer, if you're a born-again believer, this idea that God has provided a perfect high priest is essential to salvation. It's essential to our walk with Christ. It's essential to the work of the kingdom. God is doing something. He's planned before the beginning of time to bring about a perfect high priest. He set up this whole picture of who he's going to be in the Old Testament, all of that's coming very, all the way from Genesis when the first animal is killed there in the garden to cover sin, to cover Adam and Eve's sin. We see this death. We see this blood shed. We see that that is going to, that's a foreshadowing of Christ. And then through the whole hundreds and hundreds of years of the sacrificial system, animals and bulls, I could take you in the Old Testament, thousands and thousands upon thousands of animals are put to death. Their blood is shed. It's put on the altar. And yet, God is saying that is not enough because it's temporary. It has no power to do anything. It, it satisfies the wrath of God. It, it holds it off, but ultimately it doesn't completely satisfy it. And so God provides a perfect priest for his people. Last week we talked about the perfect priesthood. Now the author is going to dive in and give us six or seven characteristics of the perfect priest. And so let's take a look at it in verse 23. The former priests were many in number, right? So we said last week there was 84 uh, high priests from the time of of Israel starting as a nation uh, under Jacob and the Levites. 84 high priests, that was one that you took by office, it was by lineage, uh, and you went, you lived it, you you stayed in that until you died, all the way until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. There's 84 high priests. But there was thousands of of lower priests that did sacrifices in the temple or what we would call the... um, uh, the, the uh, tabernacle, which was the tent system out in the wilderness that they set up, and, and there was altars in there and where they would burn the sacrifices, and then there was the Holy of Holies and, and all of that where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the priests handled all of that. They did all of those things, and people would bring sacrifices for sin. When they realized they had sinned, they would bring a sacrifice depending on what it was and, and how, what their sin was and how much money they had. If the priest sinned, he would have to make a sacrifice of an animal. And then once a year on the Day of Atonement, the, the priest would do a sacrifice. The high priest would do a sacrifice for himself. And then he would go and they would make a sacrifice for, for the whole nation. But none of that was solving their problem. And so that's why the author here is trying to show them that that wasn't good enough. That priestly system wasn't good enough. And that's why God instituted a better and a perfect high priestly priesthood. And now he's talking about the difference between them as high priests and Jesus as the high priest. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. He's just stating the obviously. He's just saying, look, they're dying. Every, every high priest you've ever known is dead. Every priest you've ever known is dying. The priests that you know today are going to die. He's just making a very flat-out statement, just trying to get them to understand the mortality and, and, and of who they are. But, he goes on in verse 24, But he holds his priesthood, talking about Christ, permanently because he continues forever. Now, once again, we take those things for granted. God had to institute something that would last forever. He had to have a priest that could work and atone for the sins of the nation, 
but he, he would continue to intercede, we're going to see here, forever, forever. So the first kind of attribute that I think that he's trying to point out to us today is that Jesus is a perpetual priest. Now, I could have used the word permanent, just like there it says in the text. The reason I chose the word perpetual is because I think it, for me, it describes, a, it's a little bit more faceted. He is permanent. He is, is a priest forever. He is permanent. He will reign in that role forever and ever and ever. But when I hear the word perpetual, I also think of, and I think this is the right biblical way to look at this, is that he is an acting priest forever. He just doesn't have the role. He's functioning as the priest, as our intermediate. So it's a functioning thing. He's perpetually coming before the Lord, and we'll see that here in a minute. Let's look at verse 25. Consequently, so based on the fact that he's permanent, he continues forever, because of that, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. What does that mean? He's able, that's not a word that we use very often, right? Uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost. Because he lives forever, he can save forever. He can save anyone, anytime, any place for eternity. Nothing is beyond his ability to save. Now that was totally foreign to them. Everything was just temporary. The high priest was temporary. The sacrificial system was temporary. We had to wait until next year until there was another day of atonement. What he is saying is that this is permanent. He can save to the uttermost. Now, what is an application for us today in that? One, is it for anybody that is here this morning that is struggling with, can I be forgiven? I know my sin. I know what it is. I, I'm struggling with it. I, I, I confess, but I just don't feel worthy. I, I get, can God really forgive me? what the author is trying to tell the Jews here, because they struggled with that too. They had to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. He is coming along and saying, Jesus can save to the uttermost. No one is beyond him. So this morning, I think that applies to us. No matter where you're at in your, in, in your life, if you will surrender your life to Christ, if, if you allow Christ to just transform you, if you will just surrender, he can save you no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done. No matter what your heritage is, no matter what your history is, no matter what you have believed in the past, he can save to the uttermost. I just love the way he puts that. But there's a caveat here. Notice what he says. Those who draw near to God through him. So he can save to the uttermost. He has the ability to save to the uttermost, but he's not saving everyone. Even though he has the power to save everyone, he is not saving everyone. Why is that? Because he says here, it's for those who draw near to God. Now, as we think about just, if I stop right there in this drawing near to God, I think it was, I don't think it was Barna, it may have been Gallup put out a recent survey and it said that in America, the belief in God is, went from 91% to 81%. So 81% of people believe in God. So is that sufficient? Is that who, who Jesus or the author here is talking about, that he can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God? So 81% in our country that believe in God, have, a, have some type of belief in God, is that who he's saving? No. No, it's not. Because when we talk about believing in God, and we talk especially in our country today, there's all sorts of beliefs about who God is. All sorts of beliefs. 
many gods, different gods, different ideas of what God does, what he doesn't do. Because he puts another qualifier on it here. It says, for those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus. Now that's a, that's a qualifier that is um, pretty clear. There's no other way to draw close to God without going through Christ. That's it. If you remember when I ended our service last week, I talked about that a little bit. I said, John in the book of John and chapter 14, the gospel of John, he says, Jesus is talking to them. Now, this is not Paul saying this. This is not some other writer saying this. This is coming from the Messiah himself. He's saying there is no other way except through me. I'm the son of God. There is no other way. I'm the way. I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what a foundational statement in Scripture. I mean, we repeat it all the time, and I think it bears repeating all the time, because we so badly want to say, no, there's other ways. No, there's not. Jesus himself said there is no other way. If there was another way, I would ask you to say, well, why would Jesus have to die such a brutal death? Why would God the Father send his only begotten son to the world to be persecuted, to be beaten, to be spit on, to be mocked, to be betrayed by his people, to be betrayed by the, the, political, the political system, the, the, the religious system, even by his friends, and to die a horrible, gruesome death, and then say, but that really wasn't necessary. I mean, that's just some simple things we have to come to understand, and Scripture is clear about it, but I mean, just even, even on the surface, how is that that's not even logical that God would do that. And because what God is saying is, is, no, there's only one way. And it's through the work of the cross and what I've, what I've asked my son to do and what I have accomplished for people to take away their sin. And there is no other way to be made right and holy before God. I'm going back to what I said earlier last week, right? We can't fix our own problem. We can't create enough gods. We can't create enough religion and enough processes and traditions to fix our sin. Only God can do that. And the only way he does that is through the work and the death and resurrection of his son. And so when, and this is what this, this, is what this author is trying to get across to these Hebrews, because this is new to them, right? So he's being very clear to them. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, through this guy I've been telling you, is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the, the greatest high priest. He is now our high priest. It is him, only him, right? And now he talks a little bit more about why that is, right? But the first thing I want to show you here is that the second attribute is Jesus is a saving priest, right? Not, not only is he a perpetual priest, but he has the power to save, his ability and his work and his blood, his sacrifice you're going to see here later, is a saving sacrifice. It's a saving work. The other priests did not have that ability to save. They were just covering. They were, the blood was just covering and, and, and holding back and, and satisfying temporarily the wrath of God. It was just covering. We really see that picture back in the garden. When, when Adam and Eve sin and, and they come out with, with fig leaves after they realize they're naked and they have sinned and, and God asks them how they knew and, and what does he do? It says he made them coats of skin. He killed something to cover their sin. He didn't take it away. It, it says it covers it. It doesn't abolish it. It doesn't, it doesn't take it away. It, it doesn't satisfy God. It just covers it for now because God in his majesty is knowing what he's going to do. He's going to unfold this whole 
spiritual or this whole religious system and the, and the Jews and his people. He's going to have this whole sacrificial system. He's going to introduce the law. He's going to introduce all these sacrifices. And it's just going to be a pointing a picture to Jesus. It's going to teach us that, man, we can't be good. We, we can't do, we can't live right. We can't be right. We are helpless without this. Even under the best system, under all the priests, under all of these sacrifices, it's not enough. Only God can do something. And so that's what he's trying to teach him. And so this author is trying to get across to the Hebrews this incredible thing. Then he goes on there in the rest of 25 and he says, Since, now this is, so he's, right? Those who he draws nears to God through him. Now he's going to say why. Since he, being Jesus, always lives, so he's eternal, always lives to make intercession for them. So, so he can do this. Because he's always making intercession for them. For who? For the believers. Not for everyone. Not for the whole world. He's making intercession for those who draw near through Christ. He is making intercession. He is our great high priest who's making intercession. Who's he making intercession for? God the Father. Because we've sinned. We deserve justice. We deserve the wrath of God. Jesus intercedes for us. Right? And what is that intercession? That's a... We're, I look at it a couple different ways. We're, we're being accused because we're guilty. Uh, scripture says that Satan accuses the brethren because we sin. Even now, when you leave here today, many of you, probably all of you at some level, will sin today and this week. And, and so we, can, we see this picture a different, couple different places in Scripture where, where the enemy, the Satan, comes before the throne of God and accuses the brethren. Rightly so. We are guilty. And Jesus intercedes. He says, yeah, but I've taken that. I've died for them. I, I'm, I've taken care of that, Father. They're mine. They're those ones that you've given me. I, I've died for that. It's right. It's just. I've taken care of it. And that's perpetual, right? It's perpetual. It's going on and on and on. Th- this idea here, Paul kind of talks about it in Romans chapter, th- or chapter 8, verse 34. He says, who is to condemn? Question mark. He's basically going to go and say, there's nobody that can condemn. Why? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's constantly interceding before the Father. And he will do that until glory, until someday he makes us holy through his work and brings us home. But until then, we are. So here's here's the concept of this. Jesus' work on the cross saves us. We become a new creation in Christ. But we are continually being saved as well. It's an ongoing work because Christ continually intercedes. He holds our salvation. He's making sure that we get to the finish line. So we're continually being saved. And in that process, we're also being sanctified. He's shaping us. But, but we're not earning our, our salvation. We're just being fashioned into him, right? Because of what he's done for us. And so what's, what's kind of this next point is that Jesus is an interceding priest. Not only is he a perpetual priest and a saving priest, but he intercedes. He's an interceding priest for us. 1 John um, chapter 2, verse 1, I, I, I like how this, this gives me um, some solace. I like how John says this. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John is saying, look, I'm writing these, don't sin. You, you, you're a professed believer. Hate your sin. Don't sin. Don't, don't live that way. It's not just because Christ died for you and you have grace, don't sin. But 
If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's saying we have an, we have an interceder. We have someone that stands before the Father interceding for us. We have an advocate with God who's interceding on our behalf. And so I just, I just want you to think about that for a little bit. When, when you're living out your daily life and, and, and you struggle and, and you, you sin and you realize it and you, you come before the Lord and you, you ask for forgiveness, realizing that when you do that, the intercession is happening through Christ. He's the one that's interceding for you. We still need a priest. We still need a high priest. The problem is, is that the old high priests weren't sufficient. We have a perfect high priest and a perfect priesthood who intercedes perfectly on our behalf, who's paid the penalty and died for us, and he can intercede before the Father. Kind of talking about that, someone brought this to mind first service, and so I said I would read it, so I thought this was a good picture. So in Revelation, um, I'll just read part of this here. It's in Revelation chapter 12. This is the before the throne, and, and, and Satan is accusing the brethren. There's this, obviously, this whole picture. I won't get into all of it. But in chapter 12, verse 7, and I'll read several verses here. It says, there was a war in heaven. Michael, one of the archangels, and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, for they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient, ancient ser, uh, serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Clearly, that's taking place. Where the whole world is trying to be led astray. He's an accuser. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now has come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of his testimony. See, there's an accuser even now that's accusing before the Father. We don't fully maybe understand all that, but he's accusing us and we're guilty. There's going to come a day though, Jesus is interceding, but there's going to come a day that God's going to say, enough. It's over. He'll be defeated once and for all. And so the, the author here is just trying to, to really show them. They understand who all this is, and they understand this work. And so he's just getting, trying to give them a picture what God is doing through his son. John, chapter, John, chapter 17 of John, um, the Gospel of John here, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is before he ascends. He's, he's praying for his his. his, uh, his, his all the disciples, he's praying for those that God has given to him. That's a very long piece, but I'm just going to read a piece of it here where Jesus is interceding and praying to the Father on their behalf. And listen to what he says. For I have given them, this is Jesus talking, I have given them, the believers, the words that you gave me. And they have received them, and they have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. So here's this idea that they, they're believing. They're, they're coming, they're drawing near through Christ. It's kind of what he's inferring here. I am praying for them. So here Jesus is now even interceding. Even though he's not, he's not died yet, he's already praying for them. He's, he's praying for us. He's interceding before the Father. Now notice what he says. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So if we don't draw near to Christ and we don't come through him, he's not interceding for you. 
He's not praying for you. And so this, this, this is the, what really comes to this place. Is we have to come through Christ. And, and there's so many other religions. There's so many other belief systems. And, and, and when you begin to look at all of them and study them, they, they are all self-works-based. Um, they all put, said we have to do something. And it, it steals the glory of God. This idea that Jesus has done something that only he can do, that only God can do through him, is, is going to steal the glory of God if we add anything to it. I had a conversation after the first service with a woman, and we were talking about that a little bit, and, and this idea that as soon as we add anything to the gospel, any works-based system, anything to grace, it is no longer grace. It is no longer the true gospel. All right, let's pick it up in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting, okay, so it's, it's indeed fitting. So in other words, this is, this is indeed right. This is, God is doing obviously the right thing. It's we understand that it is right. That we, who's we? The believers. Not everyone here, right? We, the believers. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. The believers, that we should have such a high priest. And what is fitting? That he is holy. That he is innocent. That he's unstained that he's separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So now what the author is doing is he's given some real characteristics of this high priest. He's saying, look, this is, he's, he's, he's perpetual, right? He's, he's a saving high priest. He's an interceding high priest. But now he's going to get really some of the, the real character of this high priest, who he is, and why is it fitting? Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? Now he's going to begin to really kind of show who Christ is. The first thing he says here, he's holy, He's holy. Um, this, this, is, this is a hard word to kind of sometimes, he's, he's pious. He's, he's really above everything. He's, he's separate from all things. He's, he's good, alone. He, he doesn't need anything to, to make him who he is. He's, he's completely unique, right? I would argue that here in the text, he starts with that word, but now he's going to help people understand what that word means, and he's going to break it down in a few other words to give it a little bit more meat. So he starts with, says he's, he's holy. He answers God willingly, right? He's, he's perfect in all that he does. But then he breaks it down and he says he's innocent. Now, this word innocent really, I think, could be translated harmless. Harmless. What does that mean? It means that Jesus has no malicious intent. He has no thing that he's, 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 not, he's not out to fraud anything. He's not out to, to manipulate anything. He's harmless. Now think about that for a second. When he came, he came to, to die, to save. John 3.16, he didn't come to condemn. He's harmless. He, he came to do good. He came to love people. He loved the sinners. He, he, he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and, and people that sinned. He was harmless. In fact, that's the whole tragedy, the whole thing that kind of comes right to our faces, that they killed him, and yet he was harmless. He, there, there was no malice in him. There was no evil in him. He came as a, a carpenter's son, born in a manger. He was harmless, without evil. No no intent to harm. Now, someday he will come as a judge. Someday he will come on a horse and he will judge and he will be righteous and he will bring judgment. But that's not who he is now. What the author is trying to say is, look, he's come lovingly. He's come to save to the uttermost. He's come to save anyone who will draw near to God through him. 
There's no manipulation here. He's come willingly for this. And then it says he's unstained. He's undefiled. He's not been tainted by sin or any other temptation. He's unsoiled. He's he's not been tainted. He has no spots or or blemishes in his character. He's he's just flawless, right? 1 Peter 1, verse 19 says it this way. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, we were ransomed And to be ransomed, we had to be ransomed by a holy, perfect high priest without sin. See, all the other high priests had sin. They had to sacrifice animals for themselves. They they were not sinless. Here we have a, a perfect, unstained, harmless high priest. He's holy. His intentions are only good. Hebrews Earlier in chapter 4, verse 15, puts it this way. The writer says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's, he's walked in our shoes, he's been tempted, but yet without sin. So then it goes on there. It says not only is he holy, is he, is he harmless or innocent, but he's unstained. He says he's separated from sinners. He's separated from sinners. This is a little maybe harder to quite understand, but not only is he separated because he came and he lived among us, he walked with us, he, he lived with his people, but he is set apart, he's separate, he's, he's sinless, and so he's separated from us. He is God in the flesh, fully man, fully God. He's both, but he is separate from us. He's not like us. He's not going to be tainted. He's separated from the very foundations of the, the, the beginning of time when he was begotten by the Father, when he was part of the Godhead. He is separate and holy. And then what's the result of that? He is exalted above the heavens. He's exalted. And so what do we see here? Jesus is a flawless priest. He's flawless. There's, there's no blemish in his life. There's no blemish in his character. There's, there's no evil intent in him. He, his, everything is, is good from the very beginning. There's no evil intent. And this idea that he is exalted above the heavens, we see this in, once again in the high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 5. It says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. See, Christ was perfect before, he comes, he does the work of the Father, pleases the Father to bring the Father glory, to be obedient, and then he returns to heaven sinless. He never sins. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before when I was with you. He can go right back to his place because he is sinless. He lived a life here on earth sinlessly. He was flawless priest. Verse 27 of our chapter 7. Thus, he had no need, like those high priests, talking about all the other high priests before, for 84 high priests and all the other priests. He had no need, like the other priests, to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for, the sin, then for those of the people. 
since he did not did this once for all when he offered himself up. He's just basically saying, look, he's not like all the other priests. He has no sin. He has no animal to kill. He had, doesn't have to do that because he is perfect. He has no sin. He, he doesn't need to do it. And when he offers himself up for the sins of the people, it is so sufficient. It is so satisfying. He only needs to do it once. And it takes care of all of sin. For any who will draw near through Christ, it is enough. It is enough. So, Hebrews talks about this later in chapter 10, verse 14, and obviously we'll expand upon this when we get there, but I like how the writer puts it in 10, 14. He says, for by a single offering, he has perfected all those who are being sanctified. So what's he saying there? By a single offering, Jesus died once and perfected anybody that's a believer. And it doesn't mean we're still being sanctified, we're still growing, but he has perfected it for all time. Because he lives forever, he atones forever, he, excuse me, he intercedes forever, he is enough, he is sufficient. And so what do we see here? Is the next attribute I think that the author is trying to bring about is that Jesus is an all-sufficient priest. Not, like I said, not only is he perpetual in his priesthood, he, he intercedes forever and he, he's a saving priest, he's a flawless priest, but he is an all-sufficient priest. What he does is perfect. It is enough. There's nothing else required it fulfills everything. It's sufficient. Now, I will tell you that when we, and some of you may have grown up Catholic, and I am no expert on the Catholic faith, but the Catholic faith teaches, and this is one of the reasons why the Reformation happened and, and that the, the churches broke away from the Catholic Church 500 years ago, is because the Catholic Church and their teachings believe that Jesus is continually dying every time we celebrate communion. He's dying for sins. That's not what the Scripture teaches at all. He died once for all. He was sufficient. No more needed. That's why when you see a crucifix, Jesus is on the the cross because he's continuing to die for us. That's not what intercession means. It means he's done what he needed to do. Now he intercedes and says, Father, I did this. They're mine. It's good. I've I've covered them. There is no perpetual death. In fact, one of the things that they believe is when you eat the communion, when you take the communion, the bread and the wine, it actually becomes the body and blood. It's called transubstantiation. It actually does that. We don't believe that. This is a symbol that we're going to do here in a little bit. It's symbolic of what Christ has done for us in his death. He's not dying over and over again. He's all-sufficient priest. One death, a single offering, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Once again, those that are believers, those that God is bringing about and bringing to himself. All right, verse 28, last verse. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So he's just saying, look, the law appoints priests. That's, that, that was the system. That was the, the Levitical system. A priest gets appointed. He's weak because he's in the flesh. He has sin, and so he has to make offerings for himself. And so there's this inferiority here, which is what we talked about last week. The priesthood is inferior. The whole priest, the Levitical priesthood is inferior. But... He says, the word of the oath from God, 
which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect. God appoints his own son to be the high priest. After we realize that none of the Levitical system, none of the other works of man can make it work. We cannot atone for our own sin. We cannot become righteous. We cannot become clean and unblemished. We can't do it. He's, he's given us thousands of years of this system to show us that we cannot do it. So that when we come and we see now, when we see Christ, we are over, overwhelmed by him. We're overwhelmed by his perfection, by his love for us, and how he's all sufficient for everything that we need. And thus, he gets all the glory. I love it how Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, right? So he's, he's, God is doing something that the law couldn't do. Why couldn't the law do it? Because we can't be good because of the flesh. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son, he was appointed, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned it by, by taking it on and, and condemning it because he was not sinless. He was able to take the penalty. And so what's the last attribute that we see here? Jesus is the promised priest. God has made an oath to send him. He has promised to send him all through Scripture. It's been pointing to this very moment from the very foundations of the world. Christ has been set to come and to die and to take away the sins of those that God would draw to himself. Jesus is the promised priest. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy, and I think this kind of sums it up, chapter 2, verse 5. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus, or Christ Jesus. One. Not multiple. Not two. There's one. No question. And that is hard for our culture. That's hard for people that you share the gospel with. It's hard for them to understand. But there's one. And that's it. There's one God. And there's one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. So what's the takeaway today? The takeaway. Jesus is the perfect priest. God not only created a perfect priesthood, to replace the old priesthood. He created the perfect priest to fulfill the role of the perfect priesthood. And his name is Jesus. Now, here in a minute, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I want to just talk a little bit about that before we pass it out, before we do anything. Here, this thing that we're getting ready to do, and, and I just want to share with you, this is a, if you're, if you're new with us today, um, I want to give you a, a, some instructions. If you are not a believer, if you do not, have not been born again, if you have not made a profession of faith, we would just respectfully ask that this is something that you do not, you just refrain from. It's not a big deal. Just let it pass in front of you. Um, there's, no, there's no shame in any of that. That's okay. We totally understand. Um, but not to do that. Scripture says that if you're not a believer, this is something that the body of Christ should do together. Also, I would add, if you are a member and you are a believer uh, of Christ and, and you're born again um, and you have unconfessed sin in your heart, in other words, you're just holding on to things you're, you just, and you just really have a hardness in your heart and, and you have to be the judge of that between you and the Lord, the Bible teaches that you shouldn't take communion at this moment. 
Now, this would be a great opportunity as you sit and pray to, to go before the Lord, confess your sin, to, to repent, to ask God to soften your heart, to, to trust him, to put it on him and say, you know, Christ, you took this, you're sufficient, I can let this go, help me to let this go. And then absolutely you can take communion with us, you can share the Lord's Supper. But if, that's, if that is your heart is hard and you can't do that, I would just ask you respectfully not to take communion. Now, if you are from another church, if you are from someplace else, um, we have what's called an open table. So if you're a born-again believer, you are welcome to share communion with us. Um, we don't restrict that to membership or anything like that. So you're welcome to do that with us today and encourage you to do so. So this is this opportunity. Like, what do we do with what, what he's saying here? What's, what's, the, what's the next step in all this that we've been talking about? Um, I think this, this is why we're celebrating communion here, because I think this is the next step. Once we realize that, that God has instituted a perfect priesthood, and he's instituted a perfect priest, and that perfect priest dies for us, making us available to come to God. He has given us the opportunity. He has sanctified us. He's, he's saved us. He has the power to save. What's the next logical step? And that would be your next step for tonight or this morning. Worship Jesus by remembering his all-sufficient sacrifice. Worship. When we, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, part of the, it's worship. We are worshiping. We're remembering, right? There's, there's three pieces that we do here uh, when we take the Lord's Supper, three primary pieces. The first thing, we're remembering what God has done. We're looking back 2,000 years and saying, this is what God did. He created a high priest, and that high priest died for us. And he became the, the sacrifice, the all-sufficient sacrifice for us. And we celebrate then. We celebrate that truth. We celebrate what God did. And then the third thing I think we do is we look forward to the return. Let's pray. Father, today as we come before you, we know that the only way we have access is through the great high priest, Jesus he has made a way for us to come behind the curtain, to come before you with a righteousness not of our own, with our sin debt paid in full. And Father, we are overwhelmed by that. Father, I pray as we come today that, that we will be transformed by that truth, that we will be humbled, that we will realize that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There is no boasting. There's no bragging. There's no pride. There's no works, no merit that can get us to be in a place where we have a righteousness that only Christ can give. Lord, I ask that today your word not return void in our hearts, that we will see the significance of of you building a priesthood and giving us the perfect priest to be able to intercede as we continue to struggle with sin. We thank you that Jesus is perpetually and lives forever to intercede for us. We thank you that he is flawless. We thank you that he has the power to save to the uttermost, that no one is beyond his reach if they will just draw near through him to you. You are faithful and good. Father, I pray if there is someone here today that does not know you, Father, that you will call them 
You will draw them, and they will surrender their life, and they will become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And they will see that, that their debt has been paid, and they will live in the righteousness and the grace that you provide, and they will praise you forever. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to celebrate as the body of Christ. As we hold one another accountable, as we love one another, as we admonish one another. Help us to be the the church that you want us to be. And it starts in each one of our hearts as we confront our own sin. We thank you for you being the high priest that takes away and satisfies that. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.